Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, this morning, uh, we are concluding the message series that we started two weeks ago called Disappointment with God. And so I will begin today by reminding us that this sermon series is based on a book of the same name, uh, Disappointment with God, written by Philip Yancey. Uh, Philip Yancey, he's a spiritual writer. He's written a number of books. I certainly would uh, commend his writing to you. He lives out in Colorado. According to Philip Yancey, our most common disappointments with God boil down to three questions. Three questions that many of us are too afraid to verbalize because at best they seem impolite and at worst they seem offensive. And yet these are the questions that we're thinking, that we're struggling with. And those questions are these. Is God hidden? Is God silent? And is God unfair? Is God hidden? Is God silent? And is God unfair? So to recap, so far in the sermon series, uh, we have tackled that first question, is God hidden? We have tackled the second question, is God silent? And so that brings us this morning to the third, the last question, and this last question might be the toughest one of them all. Let's say it together. Is God unfair? Is God unfair? And there are a few different ways of wording this question. For example, why is it that people who love God and sincerely try to follow God and give God their all seem to experience so much pain and so much hardship in their lives. And along the same line, why is it that other people who don't care about God, don't worship God, and live only for themselves, appear to do so well? How do we account for all the evils, all the injustices that plague our world? We've spoken about some of them already this morning, uh, the folks in Ukraine, the folks in Buffalo. How do we account for all these evils and injustices in view of the fact that we believe God to be a righteous God, a good God, who has humanity's best interest in mind? And how do we maintain our claim in God's goodness in view of all the suffering in this world? Again, these are just some of the ways of wording this question, is God unfair? Well, before we go any further, I want to begin by saying that we are not going to exhaust this topic by any means. We are not going to exhaust this topic by any means. There is always more to say than what could be shared in one sermon. And I do recommend Philip Yancey's book, A Disappointment with God, if you want to explore this subject further. But I do think for our purposes this morning and the time that we have together, a good place for us to begin this conversation is by going to, <clears throat> excuse me, by going to the first book of the Bible. And what is the first book of the Bible? The book of Genesis. Because in Genesis, we come across the story of Joseph. And Joseph's story offers us a case study of unfairness. Now, Joseph's story, as it says up here on the screen, it begins in Genesis chapter 37. Uh, Genesis is 50 chapters long, and so when we come to chapter 37, we are nearing the end of the book of Genesis. In fact, Joseph's story makes up the last big section, the last narrative section of the book of Genesis. Now, Joseph, we are told, he is the second to youngest 
of his father's 12 sons. Can you imagine having 12 boys? He is the second to youngest of his father's 12 sons. Do you remember the name of his father? Joseph's father starts with a J. Jacob. And Jacob was the son of Isaac. And Isaac was the son of Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Israelite nation, the man whom God called to start the Israelite nation. We read about that in Genesis 12. And so Jacob, or I'm sorry, Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham. And we quickly find out as the story opens up that Jacob, the father, that he loves Joseph. He is obsessed with Joseph. He dots on him. He gives him all this attention. He loves Joseph more than he loves his other sons. In fact, to show Joseph how much he loves him, he gives him a special coat. You might have heard of this before. Uh, now, older translations of the Bible call it a coat of many colors. However, scholars today think that might have been a mistranslation. The jury's still kind of out on this. And so other translations of the Bible, and in fact, you might be curious, what does your Bible say at home? And so open up your Bible and see what it calls it. More modern translations call it a coat with long sleeves. But a coat with long sleeves is not as much fun to color when you're a kid in Sunday school. Amen? So when you get home today, uh, check it out in your Bible. Is it a coat of many colors? Is it a coat with long sleeves? How does, the, how does the translator translate? At any rate, whatever the coat was, he gets this coat. And what we have to recognize is that a coat back then was more than a piece of clothing. A coat was a symbol of status and honor. It meant something if you were wearing a coat. Anybody wearing a coat this morning? It meant something if you were wearing a coat. It meant that you were somebody. For an example of this, remember the story that Jesus told of the prodigal son, how this man had two sons, and the younger son said to his father, I want nothing to do with you. Give me my inheritance. And so the son runs off. He squanders his inheritance in wild living, and then he comes back to his father. What does the father do as he reinstates his son? He says to the servants, here, put a robe or put a coat on my boy, because a coat carried huge symbolic weight. So by giving Joseph this coat, that was Jacob's way of saying in front of everybody, including his brothers, hey, Joseph has my favor. Joseph has my blessing. I've got my eye on Joseph. How did Joseph's brothers feel about that? Not very good. They didn't like the way that their dad dotted on Joseph. They didn't like all the attention, all the favor that their father showed Joseph. And they also resented the fact that Joseph is a dreamer. And for a while, Joseph had been having these illustrative, descriptive dreams of his brothers one day bowing down to him. Now, folks, here's a word of advice. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you have a dream and other people are bowing down to you, whatever you do, don't tell them about that dream. Amen? Trust me, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to know about it. Joseph, in his naivety, he tells his brothers this, these dreams that he's been having, thinking that they're going to be happy and excited for him. It's just the opposite. They resent him all the more. They hate him. They despise him. And so they all come together, and they conspire, and they scheme, and they plot to kill him. But then at the last minute, instead of killing him, they sell Joseph off into slavery. Joseph is taken by a group of people called the Ishmaelites. He winds up in Egypt working for a man named 
you remember the name? Potiphar as a slave. Talk about an unfair situation. But Joseph tries to make the best of it, and so he works incredibly hard, and eventually he gets the attention of Potiphar. Potiphar really likes Joseph, but apparently not only is Joseph a hard worker, he also looks like Brad Penn <laughs> because he gets the attention of Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife sees Joseph. She likes what she sees, and so she wants Joseph to go to bed with her. Joseph is a righteous man, does not want to go to bed with a married woman, and so he resists her advances, and what ends up happening is she doesn't take the rejection too well, so when Potiphar comes back home, she basically says to her husband, hey, listen, that Hebrew slave that you brought into our house, he tried to take advantage of me. Who's Potiphar going to believe? A slave or his wife? He's going to believe his wife. And so Joseph ends up in prison for doing nothing wrong. And so I share that story with us because if anybody was in a situation of tremendous unfairness, certainly Joseph was. Joseph, though, was not the only one. Philip Yancey, again, uh, his book, Disappointment with God, has inspired the sermon series. Well, Philip Yancey says when he was working on this book, doing research for it, he met a man who, like Joseph, was in a situation of tremendous unfairness. His name was Douglas. Let me share a story. Um, Douglas was a good person, not a perfect person, nobody's a perfect person, but he sincerely tried to follow God, give God his all. He gave up a lucrative career as a psychotherapist in order to start an urban ministry and help those who are marginalized. Well, Douglas's troubles began when his wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. The doctors performed a mastectomy to try to get rid of the cancer, but then two years later, the cancer came back with a vengeance, spread to her lungs. As a result, Douglas had to take over virtually all the household and parental responsibilities while his wife dealt with the debilitating effects of the chemotherapy. He also had to watch his wife try to resist depression as her body broke down and she began to lose some of her hair. To make matters even worse, one night in the midst of this whole crisis, this journey with cancer, Douglas and his wife and their 12-year-old daughter, they were all driving in the car. Uh, Douglas was in the driver's seat, the wife was in the passenger seat, the daughter was in the back seat, while there was this drunk driver comes across the center line, smashes head on into the vehicle. The wife and the daughter suffered minor injuries. Douglas received the worst injury of all, this massive blow to the head. The injury left him with several disabilities. For instance, at one point, he was an avid reader. He loved to read. It was one of his favorite pastimes. But now he couldn't read more than a page or two at a time. These massive headaches would come randomly at any moment. He couldn't put in a full day at work. He couldn't even walk down a flight of stairs without assistance. So Philip Yancey and Douglas, they met over breakfast, and Philip Yancey began to tell Douglas about this book that he was working on, Disappointment with God. And knowing Douglas's story, knowing his situation, he asked Douglas if he would talk about his own experience of disappointment with God. But then Douglas said something that really surprised Philip Yancey. He said, to tell you the truth, Philip, I don't feel any disappointment with God. You don't? No. 
And here's the reason. You see, I first learned through my wife's illness not to confuse God with life. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm upset about what's happened. I'm upset about the cancer. I'm upset about the effects of the chemotherapy. I'm upset about the drunk driver who crashed into us. I'm upset about the headaches. I'm upset about all that. But I don't blame God. I think that God feels the same way about my situation as I do, grieved and angry. You see, we tend to assume that because God is fair, life should be fair. So at some point along the way, we have confused God with life. And if I confuse God with life, then I am setting myself up for crashing disappointment. Isn't that true? Think about this with me. That so often, you and I do this as well. Sometimes we confuse God with life. It seems that we bought into this narrative that if we are a follower of God, if we are a Christian, if we believe the right things, if we do the right things, if we say the right things, then everything in life is going to work perfectly. Everything is going to go fine. We're not going to get sick. Our marriage is going to be fine. Our children are not going to rebel or have any problems. Our job is going to be okay. But then when the shoe drops, because the shoe always seems to drop and life doesn't turn out as we would have liked, as we would have hoped or expected, then we become angry with God and bitter. We might not say this out loud, but in the depth of who we are, we're thinking to ourselves, hey God, you didn't hold up your end of the bargain. But what bargain? Nowhere in the Bible, I guarantee you, the Bible never says this, nowhere in the Bible does God ever say that life is going to be easy or life is going to be simple or life is going to be smooth sailing. So perhaps the root cause of our disappointment is that we have confused God with life. Let's go back to Joseph's situation. Think of all that had happened to Joseph. He had been ripped by his father, or ripped from his father, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused of doing something that he never did. Yet never once did Joseph feel the need to blame God, curse God, or say that God was responsible for what he was going through. So to me, a sign of spiritual maturity is learning not to confuse God with life. God and life are not the same. We need to understand that God and life are not the same. We can all agree that life is unfair. Amen? There are times, there are moments, life is just downright unfair. It's unfair that people get cancer. It's unfair that car accidents happen. It's unfair that there are so many injustices in our world. It's unfair that parents sometimes outlive their children. But that doesn't mean that God is unfair. That does not mean that God is unfair. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 145, verse 17. It's up here on the screen. He says, the Lord is righteous in everything he does. Somebody say everything. The Lord is righteous in everything. Not some things, not most things. Everything he does, he is filled with kindness. All right. So then the question becomes this. If the Lord is righteous in everything he does, if the Lord is filled with kindness, then why doesn't the Lord do something about the unfairness of life? God might not be responsible for all these unfair situations, but hey, why doesn't God step in, intervene, and fix this unfair mess that we're in? Well, the answer is God has. In Jesus Christ, God has done something about the unfairness of life. 
As Christians, we believe that Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh, God with skin on. And in Jesus Christ, Almighty God left the comforts of heaven and descended down into our unfair world. And he experienced the unfairness of life firsthand. Think of all the unfair situations that Jesus himself was in. For example, just days before Jesus was born, his earthly father, Joseph, and his earthly mother, Mary, they were forced to travel more than 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem because a corrupt government made them do that. Caesar Augustus wanted to generate additional revenue through taxation, making everybody go back to their own hometown. Talk about unfair. Or just after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph again had to leave. This time they had to leave Bethlehem and go where? Egypt. Because Herod heard that a king had been born, and his paranoia drove him to kill all the boys two years old and younger in Bethlehem. So had Mary and Joseph not taken Jesus and gone into Egypt as refugees, then Jesus would have been killed. Or what about when Jesus was about 30 years old and, and he began his public ministry uh, that Jesus constantly encountered opposition from the religious authorities. And then after three years of healing people and casting out demons and liberating them from whatever was oppressing them, Jesus was betrayed by one of his own disciples. He was denied three times by another disciple. He was arrested, he was put on trial in a kangaroo court. He was mocked, he was beaten. He was accused of saying things that he never said, doing things that he never did, and then finally he was executed. He was put on a cross between two criminals. But on that cross, God and Jesus took the root cause of all unfairness, sin itself upon his own body. And in doing this, he exposed unfairness for what it really is. As I think about this, I'm reminded of a story that I heard from uh, Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen is another great spiritual writer. Uh, he's now passed away. Uh, he was a Catholic priest. Well, Henry Nouwen knew of a family that lived in Paraguay. And at the time, Paraguay was going through a lot of political turmoil. The father in the family, he was a physician, he decided to speak out against the military there for its human rights abuses. The local police didn't appreciate that very much, so they came after his son. They arrested him. They tortured him until finally he had died. Well, enraged people from the community wanted to turn the boy's funeral into a huge protest march. But the doctor chose a different form of protest. At the funeral, he decided to display his son's body exactly as they had found it in the prison. Naked. Scarred from electric shocks and cigarette burns. And beatings. And so one by one, all the people from the community filed past the corpse, which lay not on a coffin, but on the blood-soaked mattress from the prison. It was the strongest form of protest imaginable because what it did, it put injustice on gross display. And in a similar sense, that's what God did at the cross of Jesus. God put injustice and therefore unfairness on gross display. At once, the cross showed us what kind of world we have and what kind of God we have. That we have a world of tremendous unfairness, but we have a God of sacrificial love. A God who rather than sitting up in heaven and doing nothing, just twiddling his thumbs, actually came down into our unfair world driven by love. He experienced the unfairness of life firsthand, 
And then at the cross and through the resurrection of the dead, he defeated unfairness once and for all. And we will experience the culmination of that victory that was achieved at the cross and the empty tomb when Jesus returns one day in the future to consummate his kingdom. But until that day happens, and we don't know when Jesus is going to return, we have faith it's going to happen, we believe it's going to happen, we have a conviction it's going to happen, but until that day, folks, we cannot confuse God with life. Life is going to be cruel at times. It's going to be unfair. But we continue to hold on to the victory that we have in and through Jesus Christ. I think that's what Jesus meant when he spoke these words to the disciples in the Gospel of John. This is from John chapter 16. Jesus said these words just before he went to the cross as he was in the upper room. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. Does Jesus say here on earth it's going to be nice? Here on earth it's going to be smooth sailing? It's going to be a walk in the park? No, he says here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. Not you might, you will. It's going to happen. But take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying that through the cross and through the empty tomb, I have overcome the unfairness of life. Thanks be to God. Okay, so to recap, just in case I lost anyone, so far in this sermon series, we have established two main points. The first point that we have established is that God and life are not the same. That just because life is unfair, that does not mean that God is unfair. God is still righteous. God is still holy. God is still good. God is still loving. And we've established, number two, the second point, that in Jesus, God has done something about the unfairness of life, and we will know the culmination of that defeat of unfairness when Jesus returns. There's one more point I want to bring out. That in the meantime, as we continue to struggle with unfairness, that God can redeem unfair circumstances and force good out of them. And for evidence of this, we need look no further than the story of Joseph. So going back to Joseph, he's in prison. He's done nothing wrong. Well, Joseph, we've already said this, he's a dreamer. But not only is he a dreamer, he has the ability to interpret dreams. If you have a bizarre dream, he could tell you what that dream means. And so he ends up interpreting the dreams of two of his cellmates. And as it turns out, these interpretations come to pass. And so one of these cellmates, when he gets out of prison, he tells Pharaoh about this. And Pharaoh has been having these really bizarre dreams, and, and none of Pharaoh's advisors can tell Pharaoh what these dreams are about. So Pharaoh pulls Joseph out of prison, and he says to Joseph, hey, here are my dreams. What do they mean? After Pharaoh shares his dreams, Joseph predicts that a severe famine is on the horizon. It's not just going to affect Egypt, it's going to affect uh, the entire land around Egypt, even up into the land of Canaan. But because of Joseph's interpretation, this gives the Egyptians plenty of time to stock up on food. Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph that he deems Joseph his right-hand man, and he puts Joseph in charge of the food supply in Egypt. Again, as I mentioned, the famine affects the land of Canaan, where Joseph's family lives, and so the father, Jacob, sends Joseph's brothers down into Egypt for food, and who do his brothers come across? Joseph, the very one that they sold into slavery. But rather than getting even with his brothers, Joseph decides to forgive them, and he uses his position of power and influence to provide for his family's needs. 
thereby ensuring the continuity of the nation of Israel, making sure that the nation of Israel continued to exist despite this famine. I love what Joseph says at the very end of the story. This is from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph is speaking here to his brothers. Again, the story of Joseph begins in chapter 37. Now we're at the very end, chapter 50. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Life had dealt Joseph an unfair hand, but God, in God's economy of grace, took that unfair hand and redeemed it and forced good out of it. God does this even now today. This man, who you see up here on the screen, his name is Daryl Burton. And currently, Daryl serves as an associate pastor at Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City, which, by the way, is the largest United Methodist Church in the country. Every week, he ministers to thousands of people. But Daryl was not always an associate pastor. For 24 years, he was inmate 153-063 in the Missouri prison system. You see, what happened was, just like with Joseph, Daryl had been falsely accused of committing a crime, except the crime that he was accused of committing was murder. Even though he was in a whole other state when the murder happened, he was still found guilty by a jury because a key piece of evidence that would have exonerated him was not presented at his trial. His constitutional rights were violated. Racism played a big role in his arrest and his conviction. He spent 24 years of his life behind bars. He missed out on his little girl growing up. Thankfully, in 2008, there was an organization that worked with him and took up his case, an organization that seeks to free people who have been put in prison wrongly. And this organization um, led a judge to overturn Daryl's conviction. When Daryl got out of prison, he decided that he was going to give this unjust situation over to God. He was a follower of God, he went to seminary, he became a pastor, and now as an associate pastor at a large church, he is able to effectively minister to people who struggle with forgiveness because he knows firsthand from his own experience how hard forgiveness can be, but he also knows that forgiveness is possible by the grace of God. And he also partners with this organization that seeks to free people who have been wrongly put in prison. You see, what God has done is God has taken the injustice, the unfairness that happened to Daryl, and God has redeemed it and forced good out of it. Only God can do this. Nobody else can do this except for God. The Apostle Paul, he says it like this in Romans chapter 8. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Does Paul say here that God causes everything? No. But he does say that God causes everything to work together for the good. Dallas Willard, the lay philosopher, he says it like this, for those who love God, nothing irredeemable can happen to you. For those who love God, nothing irredeemable can happen to you. Is God unfair? No. Life is unfair. But our God in Jesus Christ has done something about the unfairness of life. And even now today, God continues to redeem unfair circumstances and force good out of them. Praise be to God.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, sometimes life is really difficult. We've all been in unfair situations. Cancer diagnosis, our car accident, a child who just won't listen no matter how much we love that child and how much we try, financial hardships, injustice. God, remind us that even with all this unfairness that you are still holy, you are still good, you still love us and care for us, and you hold us in the palm of your hand. Thank you that in Jesus you have done something about the unfairness of life, that there will come a day in which all unfair situations will go away. But until that day, God, remind us that you redeem unfair circumstances and you force good out of them. Thank you for this truth. May we cling to it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.